Tonight, I come to talk about crisis and opportunity, about rebuilding the nation, revitalizing our democracy, and winning the future for America. I stand here tonight one day shy of the 100th day of my administration, 100 days since I took the oath of office and lifted my hand off our family Bible and inherited a nation we all did that was in crisis, the worst pandemic in a century, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. Now, after just 100 days, I can report to the nation, America is on the move again. Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. Happy to be here. Happy uh, to have good things to talk about. Interesting things feel, to talk about. Do you feel on the move again? I do. I do. <laughs> I do feel on the move. Uh, uh, you know, I since I have been vaccinated for over two weeks and I you know, have uh, a lot more protection than I did before, at least. I, I have been doing more things and doing them with less fear of death. So that's that's been nice. <laughs> it's a good, a good bit of certainty to have in life. Um, we are going to talk about Joe Biden's speech today, um, but we are going to talk about Biden's speech in the context of how Joe Biden's governing agenda is being felt in Georgia and how it's being sort of put into effect and promoted by our two new U.S. senators, Senator John Ossoff and Senator Raphael Warnock. Um, it was notable to me in a recent Patricia Murphy column in the AJC. She said that Biden did not need Georgia to win, but he needed Georgia's two Senate seats to govern. And I think that's becoming very clear in both how Biden approached his first joint address to Congress last week and the things that he is prioritizing in this sort of first batch of priorities for him, both in his first 100 days and then looking forward over the next three or four months or so. Or so. Also notable that Biden, right after he gave that speech, he came to Georgia to note his first 100 days, which is also the first 100 days for John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock in the U.S. Senate, and uh, basically sent the message to Georgia that all of this is because of you. So we're going to talk about that in sort of how Democrats are sort of organizing around that governing agenda. And then sort of the the counterbalance to that, I think in our state at least, is Governor Kemp and the things that he is focused on. We've talked recently about his focus uh, decrying cancel culture, decrying Major League Baseball for moving the All-Star game in opposition to Georgia's voting law. Uh, the other sort of notable threat of Kemp's politics that seems to be reemerging is the focus on immigration. Uh, He made this trip down to the southern border to check in on about 300 Georgia National Guard troops that are stationed down at the border um, and to criticize President Biden and Vice President Harris for their lack of attention on the border. Um, So we'll talk about how those two threads of politics are going to kind of balance out in this state, how they're going to duel with each other, um, because Georgia, as we all know, is going to remain the center of so many important cross currents in our state and in our country. Um, So it's a state you can learn a lot from just by keeping an eye on. 
Then for our second topic, we're going to check in on the race that is slowly but surely coming together, maybe not even surely, to be honest, slowly coming together against Senator Raphael Warnock as he has to run for re-election to a full term again in November of 2022. Um, Jim Galloway, a former longtime columnist and reporter at the AJC who is now retired, he is still breaking news in retirement, and he says that Georgia Agricultural Commissioner Gary Black is likely to enter the race against Senator Warnock. But aside from from Gary Black and the looming candidacy of Herschel Walker, all the other sort of A-list names in Georgia politics on the Republican side are are taking a pass on this race as of right now. Um, So we'll see if that that trend holds. And then we'll close this week uh, checking in on some Democratic announcements, including uh, the announcement from State Representative B. Wynn that she is going to run for Secretary of State. Uh, Luke, I'm interested in whether or not she can largely clear that field with her announcement, um, but we'll get to that before the end of the show today. Let's start here with Biden's speech, though. And I think for this conversation, we return to sort of the general trend that was actually set up during the runoff elections where we see this continued consistent focus from from John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock and from Joe Biden on the best politics for them in their view is to be viewed as substantive, consistent, governing people and to present those accomplishments to Georgians and try to focus Georgia voters on this idea that you want competent government that is acting to make your life better. And if you want that, the people to vote for is Joe Biden, John Ossoff, Raphael Warnock, and to vote for Democrats in this state. And that the sort of culture war type issues are largely, I think, in in their view of this politics, largely distractions. Um, You know, I kind of wondered if there would ever be some sort of fracturing of that or if uh, Ossoff and Warnock would stay so consistently in lockstep with Joe Biden. Um, And it's interesting in the follow-up to this speech, one of my observations is that they are remarkably aligned in the issues that they're promoting and in um, the types of politics that they're practicing in the state. I want to start here uh, before I get your reaction, Luke, on probably the biggest item on Joe Biden's governing agenda in the short term here in the next two to four months is the American Jobs Plan. Um, And that may be the most significant piece of legislation that he gets through um, along with the COVID relief bill. And core to that is a focus on jobs in in several key areas that I think are relevant, that I think are particularly relevant in Georgia. Let's listen to this sort of mashup of the American Jobs Plan section from Joe Biden's joint address to Congress last week. That's why I proposed the American Jobs Plan, a once-in-a-generation investment in America itself. This is the largest jobs plan since World War II. It creates jobs to upgrade our transportation infrastructure jobs, modernizing our roads, bridges, highways, jobs building ports and airports, rail corridors, transit lines. It's clean water. And today, up to 10 million homes in America and more than 400,000 schools and childcare centers have pipes with lead in them, including drinking water, a clear and present danger to our children's health. American Jobs Plan creates jobs replacing 100% of the nation's lead pipes and service lines so every American 
can drink clean water. These are good-paying jobs that can't be outsourced. Nearly 90 percent of the infrastructure jobs created in the American Jobs Plan do not require a college degree. 75 percent don't require an associate's degree. The American Jobs Plan is a blue-collar blueprint to build America. That's what it is. Luke, you got infrastructure jobs, including jobs to provide clean water. You have climate jobs, and you have jobs that are available to people, uh, even if they don't have a high level of education. Do you think that's a winning formula in Georgia? I think it's going to be very interesting to find out. Um, It's definitely striking right at one of the negative perceptions I think the Democratic Party has to fight in states like Georgia, that they are elitist or not focused on the problems of the common man, the dirt farmer. Uh, you know, I, I feel like that element of it is very interesting because on one hand, these types of jobs are targeted at the population that is probably most naturally aligned against Democrats. Uh, you know, there's lots of white non-college educated voters who would benefit from jobs like these and benefit from the growth in their communities that jobs like these would bring. But they politically aren't very likely to support Democrats as things stand now. And a lot of the growth has been coming from people who would not directly benefit from jobs like these, but of course would benefit from the indirect effects of having better infrastructure, of having, you know, green energy, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think it really depends on if this package passes or parts of this package passes and those folks actually feel direct benefits from it. Um, I think that could open up the door for more support of Biden and his agenda, but it it remains to be seen uh, if people will attach those new opportunities to this plan or if the Republicans will be successfully able to message uh, parts of it or even potentially jump on the bandwagon. John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, they do seem bought into the potential success of this strategy. Uh, We're recording on Wednesday, May the 5th, and and Congress is on recess this week. And I've been getting, you know, press uh, releases, press statements from those offices. And and John Ossoff, for example, he's visiting a, a battery manufacturing plant in commerce that he helped negotiate a deal to keep that plant open. He's visiting a solar cell plant in Dalton. He's in Savannah, I believe it's today, talking about the money that he secured uh, to get to the final stages of dredging the port of Savannah, which has been a longstanding project in Georgia, one that both Republicans and Democrats have brought home funding for, but one that it appears is going to get very close to done, probably get done on Ossoff's watch, interestingly. Um, you know, and, and Raphael Warnock too, he's in, uh, Fort Valley in, in mid Georgia, um, at a company that manufactures school buses, riding electric school buses on, on this trip, um, on these trips around the state. All of this seems to be in perfect lockstep of the types of things that are top of mind on Joe Biden's agenda are also the top of the agenda for John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. You know, I've always had this question of of if there would ever be some sort of separation between the two, if particularly Warnock in the lead up to his uh, soon bid for reelection, if he would have to demonstrate some independence from the president. 
Um, but I don't know that they, they seem in lockstep so far. What do you think about about that approach from from Georgia's two U.S. senators, without whom none of this really would be possible? Well, I think there are two big elements of of this. The first one I'm going to just point out because I think it's it's fairly obvious. I mean, <laughs> I, I I hope someone does an analysis of this not state of the union, state of the union addressed by Biden to see if it is the address from a president to Congress that used the word jobs the most. I mean, jobs are very popular. People like jobs. People like to have jobs. People like other people having jobs that, you know, jobs are good. And so I think it's kind of unsurprising that the president is proposing a ambitious jobs package that would directly benefit the state of Georgia that the two Democratic senators who support that president and support that agenda are talking about it. But the other thing that I think is also true is I think a not insignificant part of the success that Warnock and Ossoff were able to have in Georgia was based on the fact that people in Georgia generally like Joe Biden. Uh, he has majority favorability, even though it's just barely <laughs> at 50, <laughs> exactly, uh, in the most recent AJC poll done by the University of Georgia, uh, Go Dogs. Um, and that, you know, 50% is higher than the 48 that both Warnock and Ossoff have. And so if the president is more popular than you are in your state, it kind of makes sense to support his agenda. And I think that is why we saw them do that in their campaigns, that a not insignificant por portion of their stump speeches were, hey, you like Joe Biden. If you want Joe Biden to be successful, elect me and I will help Joe Biden, that guy you like. And I, I, I kind of just see them continuing that trend until... Uh, Joe Biden's numbers change significantly in the state of Georgia, and they may never, um, or they may go really south. And I, I think that's when we would see a change from them is if if Biden's numbers or position in the state of Georgia begins to change. And the last thing I'll say on that is Democrats have tried the strategy of running away from national Democrats, national Democrat policy before, and it was not successful in getting them elected. And so I think. In you know until until something changes, this strategy is the only strategy that makes sense. It would be strange to create distance between you and the you know decently popular Democrat president in the state of Georgia. I mean, the fact that Biden is at fifty, like that doesn't sound great. I mean, it's fifty. You know, everyone wants to be more popular than just fifty. But for a Democrat president in the state of Georgia, I mean, that's the highest numbers they've had for quite some time. So I, I, I think that 50 is, is worth hanging on to, especially because as you know, Joe Biden has shown being just about 50% popular uh, is a way to win an election. So, you know, I, I think that is really key to the behavior uh, of Ossoff and Warnock in, the, in these situations. Well, and the other thing, according to this new AJC poll that came out today on the day that we're recording is that Biden said about 50, but on these issues that Biden and Ossoff and Warnock are choosing to highlight, uh, the numbers are better for Democrats. Like Biden's handling of COVID is at 61% approve or strongly approve and 34% disapprove or strongly disapprove. Uh, the, the American Rescue Plan, the big COVID stimulus bill that passed earlier this year is at 59 support, 35 oppose. And even uh, the the infrastructure plan, it, it's not quite as high, but it's at 51% support and 38% oppose. And then this poll interestingly asked, 
put a put a frame around the infrastructure plan saying that it would be paid for in part by increasing corporate taxes and it still remained at 51 51% support and 45% oppose so all of these issues are as popular or more or more popular than Joe Biden is in the state um so it does make sense that this is the place they would try to focus and it also makes sense that this is a place that that Republicans really wouldn't want to focus on. Yeah, and I mean the other thing I find really encouraging for Democrats in this poll is the fact that not only are these support numbers pretty good, they're the opposed numbers are are pretty low as well. And so it's not like it is a very highly partisan 50-50 split uh like the favorability ratings basically are for all of the Democrats in office in, in Georgia and, and Biden himself, but it, it seems like there's not a lot of strong opposition to these uh, policies and there's some ambivalence and you know, a decent amount of people are, are ragging in the don't know category, which I, I think is, is, is generally good because in my mind, that's people being a little bit open to <laughs> learning more uh, before they, they make up their opinion just based on partisan lines. And so uh, to me, I think that is a sign of potential enduring strength for this uh, because as people get a better idea of the American jobs plan, but also as the COVID relief bills consequences start to permeate through the state, I, I really would not be surprised if those numbers go up. And I don't see, at least with the COVID package, I don't see those numbers going down because, you know, in a couple months are people going to be like, you know, I really didn't like getting that you know, money from the government to help me pay my bills. Uh, I wish they hadn't done that. I, I don't. I don't think that'll be true. I think if anything, uh, people will want to see the government do more. And hopefully, uh, if Ossoff and Warnock and Biden can keep selling the plan the way they have been, it'll start to get into people's minds that like there's a lot of things the state of Georgia would get that would benefit the state of Georgia and help the state of Georgia in this plan. And uh, you know, hopefully they'll they'll support it. The one place where there is, I think, a little sliver of daylight between Warnock and Ossoff and and where there may be some emerging questions about how much Joe Biden is prioritizing this issue is around the issue of voting rights. Uh, This is an issue that has obviously been top of mind here in Georgia. um, And given Warnock's background, um, it makes sense that this would be an issue that he prioritizes. But I, I say that there's a little sliver of daylight here because he has sort of stuck his foot out there to say that he would consider amending or getting rid of the filibuster to pass voting rights legislation. In fact, let's listen to what he uh, told Meet the Press about this issue in March. But Chuck, I have to tell you, I, I know that folks are focused on the filibuster, but this language about the filibuster is language much too puny uh, as an appropriate frame to talk about something as vital and as precious as voting rights. We have to pass voting rights no matter what, and it's a contradiction to insist on minority rights in the Senate while refusing to stand up for minority rights in the society. Luke, that's where Senator Warnock is on that. John Ossoff, I don't think, has been quite as outspoken, um, you know, particularly as it relates to the filibuster. But for Joe Biden, Luke, there was some concern that in his joint address to Congress, his mention of H.R. 1, the For the People Act, and the other big voting bill, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, um, that these sort of fell towards the end of the speech. And the fact that Joe Manchin has come out opposed to them in their current form 
means that this is a tougher partisan fight that they may not want to focus on right now when you have this popular uh, spending agenda that can also be passed without having to confront the filibuster question. Um, What do you think about the prospects of Warnock being able to kind of break the dam on that issue and get Senate Democrats to get united around voting rights bills um, and and him and his focus on that issue generally? I, I think those bills are more likely to succeed with him in the Senate than with him not being in the Senate. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's just hard to argue with the pastor of MLK's old church on voting rights issues when, you know, he stands up in a Senate caucus meeting and says, this is really important and we should do it. Uh, it. It's a lot harder than if he wasn't there to argue that. And I think um, it's easy to get lost in the traditions of any institution, but definitely the United States Senate. And so I, I, I think he is a powerful advocate uh, for those issues. And I think he is being very smart about the way that he is talking about it and bringing it up and integrating it into the other things that he talks about. And um, I don't expect he will relent at all, and he shouldn't, on pushing the Senate to do something about these issues. Uh, I don't know if he will be successful. Uh, in my reading of history, unfortunately, is, you know, uh, the Senate is, as Robert Caro, a great author on, on the subject, uh, you know, refers to it as a dam. And it's very, very good at blocking progress and blocking things that, you know, uh, people want to see happen, even incredibly popular things like reasonable gun control or uh, voting rights. So I, I will not be shocked, unfortunately, if Warnock is not successful in this effort. But I, I do think him being there gives it more of a chance to be successful. And I think that, frankly, this discussion is still in early days. And I, I, I would not be surprised if some compromise comes up that has more support among the mansions and cinemas of the world, uh, especially just based on how aggressive the state legislatures are being uh, around the country on these issues and, and curbing voting rights. And I think eventually the pressure will be pretty hard for them to hold back. They may still find a way to do it, but I think it will be a lot harder. Um, and, and there are elements of both pieces of these bills that I would not be completely shocked if they went to the floor that they would, you know, find some Republican votes, especially the Voting Rights Act renewal uh, and the John Lewis Voting Advancement Act, uh, since many of the Republicans who are currently in office have voted for basically the same bill previously. So I, th- I think there's there's still some room in this debate, and it's, it's not all or nothing. And I, I hope that we can see that in, in how that debate goes forward. Uh, as, as much as I think the For the People Act as written would be, would be great for the country and helpful for the country, uh, I, I still think this is one of those areas where getting some progress on there is far more important than getting everything right now. Yeah, and obviously, you know, I, we, we tend to jump to the politics of things pretty quickly. There are obviously strong just straight up moral reasons to support protections for voting rights. We've seen that in Georgia. We've seen that now increasingly, you know, since we wrapped up our legislative session, other states are uh, putting into place their own versions of voting restrictions that in some ways are inspired by 
the ideas that were considered and some were passed in Georgia. Um, so there's certainly reason there for Warnock to fight on this issue, even if he's ultimately not successful. But I think on the politics, it's interesting because there hasn't been a lot of pushback to Joe Biden's jobs and COVID recovery agenda among Georgia Republicans to the extent that they have pushed back. None of that seems to really be sticking and making those policies unpopular in our state. But there are two places where Governor Kemp seems to really want to fight Democrats hand to hand, and that is on the blowback to the state's uh, voting law that makes it more difficult to vote in Georgia and on the issue of immigration that we'll get to here in a second. Um, but, you know, Kemp is still doing tours in the media saying that Joe Biden lied about the impact of Georgia's law and that Joe Biden and Stacey Abrams are the ones who are responsible for Major League Baseball taking the All-Star game out of Georgia. You saw high-ranking national Republicans like Senator Lindsey Graham and uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. They were both in Georgia this week at different events, uh, being really critical of of corporations that have uh, opposed Georgia's voting law. And this is an issue where they say that something like HR1 is this, I, I believe I heard Kemp describe it as an unconstitutional federal takeover of elections. And he said that even some Democratic secretaries of state don't want some of the policies that are in there. Um, he's very comfortable fighting on this issue. It's a good way for him to signal to his own base. But I, I think it's one that, you know, the in the AJC poll, moving the all-star game out of Georgia was a pretty unpopular move. Um, so that's that I think is why I wonder about the politics. You could see a version of this where Democrats restrict themselves to popular things and then try to run on having only done popular non-polarizing things. But that does leave a lot of important issues on the table that aren't necessarily popular and can be polarizing, can be attacked by Republicans. But at the end of the day, the policy is uh, better than what's on the table now and, and um would be really beneficial in, in protecting a lot of people's rights, you know, particularly a lot of people of color. I don't have specific polling to to back this up, but there there's two things that I, I find really interesting that I, I hope someone does a poll on this soon in the state of Georgia. One is that the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Advancement Act, voting right uh, voting rights, making voting easy in general is very popular with the public, right? Like these bills are popular. I don't haven't seen a poll of Georgia about those bills, but I imagine that if you talk about the things that the bills do, the provisions within the bill, they are popular. And I, I I'm pretty pretty clear on that. The other thing is with the voting bill in Georgia and why I don't think more people are against it yet or believe in this poll that's going to make voting harder is because the big flashy provisions that were going to make voting really, really hard in the state of Georgia ended up getting removed. And so, you know, rightfully, a lot of coverage was based on, oh, this provision's insane, and then that provision got removed. And so the minor technicalities that remain don't feel like they're a burden to you until you're in a specific situation that would 
make it harder for you to vote. And so I think it may take a cycle or two for people to actually be like, no, that, that bill did make voting harder, and I don't like it. Um, because, you know, as, as we pointed out previously, the bill, as written now and is as law, would have prevented Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, from voting in 2020 in the method that he chose to vote. And I just think when people start running into those issues because life happens, I, I think that will make people more frustrated with the the provision. And I don't think, as insane and paradoxical as it sounds, that just because you think the Georgia bill is okay does not mean that by default you think the For the People Act is bad and you don't like it. You could like both of them because, generally speaking, the messaging that Brian Kemp and the Republicans are doing, and they have very loud microphones for this, is saying that this made voting easier, this made voting safer, and you should like those two things. And most people are like, yeah, I like voting to be safer and easier, so of course, you know, people are not going to instantly be against it. Because I think this is, you know, one of the strangest things about political messaging, I think, is, is so much of time by politicians and people on campaigns is spent demonizing the other side and convincing voters that, you know, they, you know, that they're just bad actors, right? And I think in Georgia, things are so close and things are so tight that there's just an element of people not wanting to believe their team has done something bad. And so I, I think there's just a baseline number of people that like, well, the Republican governor did this and the Republican legislature did this, so I'm sure they did it for good reasons. And they, you know, I, I don't know <laughs> uh, what it would take people to, to realize that that's just not the case here. Uh, but I, I think there's a hesitancy to, you know, impute bad motives on people uh, because you're sort of implicit in it if you voted for them. And so that that's that's my read on those provisions and the reason why the poll has the the voting law um, at, at that place. And, I, and the thing I think is also interesting in that poll is just how strongly people say they think businesses should just stay out of politics and they should not comment on the politics of uh, states and because it does feel a bit like the opposite of what happened in North Carolina with the you know religious liberty bills and the transgender ordinances there and so I I just find that very interesting. So Luke, the other big focus from Governor Kemp recently has been to return his focus to the issue of immigration. He made a much publicized trip to the southern border. Um, much memeified. It was very memeified. Uh, trip to the southern border to Fort McAllen, Texas, to, he said, check in on the nearly 300 Georgia National Guardsmen who are serving on the border down there. Um, and then he did take shots at the vice president and the president, um, particularly for some reason at the vice president for her unwillingness to go to the border. I don't actually know what that stems from. Um, but I imagine there's some clip that probably made its way around conservative media. Notably, there, to there, me there is that, a clip where Kam, you know, a reporter asked Kamala Harris if uh, she is going to the border and she said not today. <laughs> so I think that might be some of the basis. She's a busy lady. She has to run the American jobs plan now, which we learned during the, uh, during Joe Biden's joint address. Um, but you know, most notably to me, Kemp, did a lot of promoting him and his team did a lot of promoting of this trip. 
Um, I think it was on most of the local news stations in Atlanta. He also gave a pretty extended interview to Newsmax where he talked about his trip to the border and about what he would say are Joe Biden's failures on the border. He's he's knee deep in another one of these issues that I think is aimed squarely at shoring up his support among the conservative base, an issue that there is probably no or very little daylight between him and Donald Trump on that issue. And I think there was a lot, there was a jump from a lot of Democrats to, I think, kind of mock uh, Kemp's trip. I thought the memes were funny, but I do think that in some ways, Kemp is being successful in keeping a legitimate conservative Trump-backed challenger from finding their way into a primary against him. Um, and immigration, I think, is a, is a pretty decent issue for him to try to uh, secure that political goal. The one thing about that trend, though, Luke, this is another dynamic that we've commented on before, though, is Republicans wrapping their politics around these issues that are uh, engaging to the conservative base largely means that they have conceded at least a aggressive public message on the kinds of productive, moderate, conservative governing that they're doing in Georgia. And so I think it's notable that, and, and I think here it's it's appropriate to play a, a little hype video that Ossoff's team put together about his first 100 days in office. But it does appear Democrats have an opportunity while conservatives are focused on shoring up their conservative base, uh, they have an opportunity to claim the mantle of moderate, uh, productive governance. And in fact, here's what uh, John Ossoff's team put together about John Ossoff's first 100 days in the United States Senate. John Ossoff signs right now to represent the state of Georgia in the United States Senate, a historic day. We came here to deliver help for the people of Georgia. Georgia Senator John Ossoff is calling for Congress to move quickly on passing a COVID relief package. We are working to advance this legislation. Thanks to Senators Warnock and Ossoff, this COVID bill will be bigger and bolder. U.S. Senate narrowly passing that huge COVID-19 relief bill. $1,400 stimulus checks in the mail. $4.6 billion going to our school districts. $143 million to Georgia's critical health care centers. The package ensures every Georgian gets the COVID-19 vaccine free of charge. And those two Georgia senators were the deciding vote. And one of the things that we've just achieved is an extension of the PPP small business program through May. Senator Ossoff sponsored the bill to extend help for small businesses and President Biden signed it late this afternoon. It is a bipartisan accomplishment. Senator Ossoff is trekking across the Peach State. Senator John Ossoff bringing good news. I mean, really good news. During his stop in Albany. In Augusta today. In Chatham County. Columbus today. In Atlanta today. His second trip to Macon this week. John Ossoff launched a push to include funding for replacement of lead pipes at public schools in Georgia. So that our children have safe, healthy, clean drinking water. A major announcement. 
Thanks to the intervention of a Georgia senator, 2,600 jobs will be coming to Jackson County. Senator Ossoff was brought in to settle a trade dispute between two companies. The future of the plant was in jeopardy. And SK thanked Senator John Ossoff for his help. He helped break the impasse that led to a successful settlement. And thousands of skilled jobs are coming to Georgia and staying in Georgia. And as you said, you're just getting started. So get ready, get ready, get ready. Luke, John Ossoff, the star of the show. We've uh, we've talked about you know COVID relief, the, the jobs plan, but I think interesting in framing his first hundred days is that intervention in the trade dispute with the battery plant, um, and all of his uh, touting of all of the money that he's brought home, sort of in a way that may uh, bring back memories of a politician like Johnny Isaacson. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what I was thinking when I was listening to that video and just watching John Ossoff over the past couple of weeks is, I mean, it makes a, a ton of sense for him. Uh, Johnny Isaacson was a very successful and very popular politician, really honestly, on both sides of the aisle. And it was always difficult to find a quality Democratic challenger uh, against him be- because of that, of the fact that he was, you know, a statesman in lots of people's eyes and i i think you know of course he voted ways i did not like uh, quite often but on things like this where it is really not partisan and it is just good opportunities for georgia of you know trying to you know bring businesses here and get money for port of savannah or you know keep you know deal with negotiations that sort of thing like isaacson was always very very good at that very focused on that and I'm I'm not surprised that Ossoff is adopting that model just because of the fact that he um, was on Capitol Hill as a staffer for a while, and I think he has just seen positive models of how that can work. And I think it's one of those things that if he can continue doing things like this, he will attract a lot of support and a lot of you know just goodwill among the business community and the people who pay attention to these things in in Georgia. And so I definitely don't think it will put him on Isaacson's level of avoiding tough Republican challengers or anything like that. But I I think if he can continue to do things like this for six years, he will build a pretty strong brand uh, that he will be able to run on. And I think it is very fitting based on how he campaigned because he really campaigned on a the government can do good things for you. Washington can pass good policies that help you. And having a senator who shows up and cares and wants to fight for Georgia matters. And so far, I mean, he's been doing that to a T. And I, I find it really interesting, you know, based off our earlier discussion of Warnock, because, I mean, we spent a lot of time in the runoff talking about how they had very different brands. And I really think... <laughs> It's hard to argue that either of them have broken from their campaigning brand. Like Warnock is still being the, you know, coach of the football game, telling you what matters, telling you what's important and what he's going to fight for and being that moral messenger and Ossoff is bringing home the bacon policy guy and I I think that really is working for both of them and I think it, it's good that Ossoff has the longer term because I think 
building that record will be really, really important for him and showing that he can accomplish these things over the long term. It's going to be really important for him. Whereas Warnock's general strategy, I think that the quick turnaround uh, does not hurt it nearly as much. It's funny. I actually feel the opposite. I, I sort of think it could have been more beneficial for Warnock had he been the one to intervene in trade negotiations with these two South Korean battery companies that preserve 2,600 jobs in a, a pretty conservative part of the state, that it could have been better for Warnock to get that press and build that brand because he has the shorter time frame and intervening in that way, in a way that would help uh, protect jobs in a way that is uh, resonant of, of Johnny Isaacson's approach to politics in this state, I think could have been a strong uh, messaging point for him against what any Republican headed his way is going to say. They're going to call him radical. They're going to um, say that the ideas that, you know, they're going to try to tie him in the same way Kelly Leffler did to um, black lives matter activists that they think are domestic terrorists. I mean, it like the politics against him are going to, I think return really quickly to that nasty negative um, approach that Kelly Leffler took. Now, Warnock won last time. He won by a wider margin over Kelly Leffler than John Ossoff did over David Perdue. So it's, it doesn't necessarily mean that his reelection campaign is going to be sunk. But um, it is interesting. I feel like in some ways, John Ossoff just seems to be a little more assertive in getting his name out there and putting himself at the center of uh, things that he wants to tout politically. Like in some ways, I think it is a little uh, ambitious of a, a first term 30 something year old Senator to suddenly be brokering trade uh, disputes between two clean energy companies. Um, you know, it's, it's a bit audacious, but, but he did people it. Who, <laughs> like, you but, know, that's the thing. It's like, if you can do it, do it. Well, and people who know him are not surprised that that he did that. Um, it it is going to be beneficial to building his brand in this state. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I I don't think it would have hurt Ornock if he was able to do this. But I think, at least so far, it is far more in line with what Ossoff's brand is and what he sees the job and talked about the job of being the senator for the state of Georgia. And Warnock is is kind of in a different lane. And I think <clears throat> they are playing to their strengths because Ossoff is not, <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry, John, he's not the like inspirational, you know, rally everyone figure, whereas Warnock is, and like that's his strength. And so I think while Warnock, if he had been in the position to negotiate this and get the credit for it, it definitely would help his chances. I think long-term, Ossoff needs it more because the brand of I'm a get things done senator, you need a long record of actually getting things done to build up that support and to build up people's faith in that is true and that you can do that and that you'll continue to do that. Whereas Warnock's strategy of really being like, I am there to do the right thing. I'm there to vote on the right positions and to push for the your values and the things that you think matter. Like that that does not take as long to convince people of. And I think it really is hard to argue against a 
you know, pastor <laughs> of a church uh, for being a radical, you know, terrorist or whatever, all the crazy things that uh, whoever runs against him will say, just because, like, you just see him on TV and he's not doing those things. And and so I, I agree with you. That is, I'm sure that is the route that uh, Republicans are going to go, but I just don't think it's going to work uh, because it didn't work last time. And I think him having more time on the public stage will just make those arguments harder and harder. And so I, I, I think, again, as I said, Ossoff and Warnock are playing to their strengths, and I think that's what they should do. Let's move on here and talk about who may be potentially making these arguments against uh, Senator Warnock. And I think it's most notable about the slowly developing Senate race against Senator Warnock is the names that have declined to enter this race Big name Republicans like David Perdue, Doug Collins, Jeff Duncan, Georgia's Attorney General Chris Carr, they've all declined to run against Senator Warnock in his reelection bid. Kelly Leffler has not ruled it out, but I think when I've seen her talk about this in the press, she's saying that she's focused on her conservative voter engagement group um, and, and doesn't have any kind of pending decision on this race. Uh, you know, shouldn't do too great last time. So I, you know, I don't know if this is the right one for her anyways. Um, so that brings us to the people who have said they will run to, uh, relatively unknown Republicans, Latham Sadler and Kelvin King. Um, and then the names that may potentially enter this race, probably the most notable of which is Georgia agricultural commissioner, Gary Black. And I call him the most notable he is the one rumored to be closest to jumping into this race. The other names we'll talk about, uh, Georgia Congressman Buddy Carter from down in Savannah and uh, former University of Georgia uh, all-star running back Herschel Walker. Go dogs. Being encouraged to run by Trump. Go dogs. It's also worth pausing to note that uh, Herschel Walker and Donald Trump have a history in that Donald Trump drafted Herschel Walker to play for his USFL team. Um, and I believe is one of the reasons that Herschel left college early. So I still have that beef with you, Donald. Yeah. I mean, they've, they've been friends a very long time, apparently. But those names, you know, I think Buddy Carter seems to be waiting on Herschel. Herschel, who really knows? We, we can get to him in a minute. The sort of substantive rumored to enter candidate is Agricultural Commissioner Gary Black, Jim Galloway, a uh, longtime AJC columnist who recently retired. He did say on Political Rewind the other day that, that Gary Black was likely to enter this race. Um, former State Representative Buzz Brockaway, who's pretty plugged into Republican politics in this state, he wrote a post on Peach Pundit, which has come back to life here. I mean, it is a good read if you want to understand what's going on in, in conservative politics in Georgia. He wrote a post at Peach Pundit encouraging Gary Black to enter this race. But Luke, who is Gary Black? <laughs> well, one quick thing before I get to Gary Black. I, I want to push against the seems most likely to run. Uh, and, and from everything I've seen, Buddy Carter basically wants to run, is ready to run, has built a team to run, but he's just waiting on Herschel. Uh, Gary Black, I've not heard those things about, and all I've heard is is this Galloway. Um, 
article. But I think Gary Black is a good person to talk about, even if he doesn't end up running, just because it, it sort of highlights some of the problems the Republicans are having in this race here. So, like, who is Gary Black? Well, as you say, he's the agricultural commissioner, like, big whoop. Well, no, not big whoop. Like, one, in Georgia, agriculture is huge, uh, and we have had this position of agricultural commissioner for a long time, and we have a history of people being in it forever. Uh, the guy that was in it before Gary Black was in it for decades, and Gary Black has been in it for decades, and he's actually very popular. I mean, he, among the statewide Republicans, when they do polls of them, uh, he does very well. He pretty consistently is one of the top performers. He was the he was the best performer in 2018 of yeah. any Republican statewide. And I think the reason why is is pretty clear is that he just like screams like I'm a farmer and I understand I understand agriculture. Like if you've ever seen this guy talk, like it's you know he's just talking about things that make sense and are are uh, important to agricultural communities. And while he is very much a Republican conservative guy and he talks about those issues and he is on the side of uh, you know the 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 team there it's just like he's kind of in this position as agricultural commissioner that he's just talking about a lot of bread and butter issues kind of literally and he you know for for that reason has the opportunity to kind of stay out of a lot of partisan fights um while still being you know uh, able to go around the state and you know talk to people about a very important sector of georgia's economy and so I, I, I'm not surprised that um, someone like Gary Black is being pushed to run, encouraged to run, or even thinking about running, uh, because it makes sense. Because as you said, he ha- is the, or was the top performer in 2018. He has been around the Republican Georgia scene for a long time. He would, he is very popular. I have, a, you know, I have a lot of Republican friends. They all have very nice things to say about Gary Black. I haven't heard anyone, you know, talk negatively about him. I'm, I'm sure there are people that don't like him. <laughs> it's, it's politics. There's always people that don't like you. Uh, but yeah, it's just like he's just. I think it's one of those things where they're they're the conservatives who care about the Republican Party's institution, who want to run a good, smart campaign. They see Gary Black as someone who is a team player, who's good on the stump, who knows the state, who's been around for a long time, and could probably navigate a tricky primary as a establishment conservative pick. And I think that makes a lot of sense to me uh, from the perspective of a political consultant. What I'd be really curious to see is, like, would that actually play out the way that they think it would? And I'm not 100% on that at all, uh, but it would be fun to watch for sure. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that stands out to me about him is he does seem like a party guy. You know, when you look back at articles describing his experience, he is always on the sort of agricultural advisory team to whoever the Republican nominee for president is, going back to George Bush, to McCain and Palin, um, all the way through to to Trump and Pence in, in 2016. He seems to be somebody who's, who's done a lot of good service in the party. And so you, it sort of sets up this dynamic where, especially one or two or three cycles ago, you could see Gary Black as somebody who goes to every chairman of every Republican party and every, 
county across the state. He's probably already got a relationship with them, you know, and, and, and could build up support among consistent Republican primary voters that way. But the other dynamic you see reading uh, AJC press lately is that some of these county Republican parties are being overtaken by uh, Trump, Trumpy conservatives um, who are furious with the party establishment and who wanted to see the party do more to support Trump in his bid to overturn the election um, and, and buys into his Trump's conspiracy theories about the election being rigged. And the dynamic you see is, you know, I don't know that Gary Black could conceivably enter the Republican primary in the Senate race with Trump's endorsement. And the person that Trump seems to be encouraging is Herschel Walker. How effective would it be for Gary Black to leverage all of his relationships in the party? How much can he turn those into votes if he goes up against a guy in Herschel who has none of those relationships? We have no idea if he's even a good politician or not. Um, no, he has been a... Um, but, uh, common donor to Republicans in the state and Republican causes and boosters of Republicans. So he at least has some connection to Republican politics, but I agree with you on all those other factors. I mean, he has not been on the stump for weeks at a time. I, I have seen him speak on Trump's behalf and did a video for Trump, but yeah, those are, there's a lot of X factors with him. But I mean, you know, Kelly Leffler wasn't dazzling in any of those, uh, those aspects either, but she was the Trumpiest and, and seemed to get the reputation as the strongest backer of Trump that carried her through against Doug Collins. Notably Gary Black endorsed Doug Collins, even after um, his fellow party man, Brian Kemp appointed Kelly Leffler for that seat. Um, but you know, is, is a potential Trump endorsement of somebody that isn't Gary Black. Is that the Trump card in that Republican primary? Um, or does somebody with more traditional credentials and relationships, can that be leveraged into votes? I think that's kind of the dynamic to watch there. Yeah. And I think this is interesting as an experiment in a lot of ways, but one of the ways that's the most interesting to me is that in a lot of these primaries where Trump gets involved, there are other Republicans running who are experienced politicians in some way um, because they are either, you know, people who had run for office before, but maybe they weren't successful or they were incumbent state senators or state house people or Congress people. And like Herschel just isn't, he's just completely unproven. He's literally just a friend of Donald Trump. Uh, and so I don't know if Gary Black could beat someone like Herschel Walker. The other thing, too, that we've seen in some of these primaries is someone ends up being Trumpier and more convincingly Trumpier than the Trump-endorsed nominee, and then those people win. And so I, I could really see that happening in this Senate race more than a Gary Black-like figure being beating Herschel Walker. I could see Herschel getting into this race and kind of being lackluster, and then some, you know, crazy, super far-right Trump person gets in and, and, and beats all these guys. Uh, I could see that definitely happening, and I, I would not be shocked if that happened at all. 
The other dynamic that's interesting for Gary Black is this is an assumption that I think we're making. I don't think we know enough about Gary Black and he hasn't had to take the kinds of positions that would give us a good measure of where he's at on the Trump scale. So we sort of, I think, assume that he comes in with maybe less credentials among Trump's super fans in the Republican electorate. Does he, like Kelly Leffler, sort of overextend himself in trying to prove that he is as Trumpy as everyone in the Republican Party wants your nominee to be? And if so, does that consequently undermine the potential support he could gain among moderate voters if he does make it out of a primary and into the general? That, I think, is a particularly interesting question for Gary Black, who is well-known, I would assume, in in more rural parts of the state, but probably has very little, if any, profile in a, in the vote-rich areas around Atlanta and other urban centers in the state, where it's clear that Republicans are going to have to claw back some support in that area. You know, does your state's agriculture commissioner, uh, is he really the best one to do that? Yeah, and I mean, to be blunt on my end, I have no idea why Gary Black would want to do this. Uh, because, you know, if Democrats sweep the state of Georgia, I, I could see someone like Gary Black holding on. And, and th- this is really typical of what happens in states when they start to experience these these party flips is there'll be some statewide down ballot people who just like mysteriously hold on for a couple terms and you know gary black's i think 63 and so it's just like why would you want to just completely change your career and start going to the senate after being a very popular very effective agricultural commissioner and you know having uh, a lot of influence uh, on these issues and he very obviously cares about them a lot and talks about them a lot so to me it, it again it makes a lot of sense as a political consultant I don't know <laughs> why Gary Black would want to do it and and face that gauntlet and have to put himself out there on on the these issues uh, but we'll, we'll see maybe maybe he will be doing that but I I, I definitely would not <laughs> if I was in his position probably Let's wrap up here with probably the most notable Democratic campaign announcement of the last couple of weeks, and that came from State Representative B. Wynn, who has announced that she will uh, vie for the Democratic nominee position for Secretary of State. Um, she is the first big-name Democrat to enter this race. Um, about the same time that she announced her candidacy, there was a lesser-known candidate named Manswell Peterson, who's a professor and military veteran down in Southwest Georgia. He is also a candidate for the Democratic nomination for Secretary of State. Um, let's listen to a little bit of B. Wynn's announcement video and why she thinks she should be the next Secretary of State. My name is B. Wynn, and I'm the daughter of refugees who came to our country with nothing but the possibility of the American dream. My four sisters and I didn't have a lot growing up, but my parents put a roof over our head and gave us the gifts of love and resiliency. I know what we can achieve when we have access to good schools, safe homes, and strong communities. Every Georgian should have the same chances I did. When I began my career in public schools, I met students like Dia who couldn't dream of tomorrow because every single day was uncertain. We imagined a Georgia 
where the color of our skin or the places we live don't determine our destinies. I took that vision to the streets, to the ballot box, and to the Georgia State Capitol, where I strengthened protections for victims of domestic violence, fought against the hate directed towards our communities, and defended our sacred, most fundamental right to vote. We show the power we have when Georgians come together. Republicans have done everything in their power to silence the voices of voters who chose an America that works for all of us and not just some of us. But we will not allow anyone to stand in the way of our right to a free and fair democracy. I'm B. Wynn, and I'm running to be your next Secretary of State. Luke B. Wynn would be a history-making uh, candidate if she's ultimately successful. She'd only be the second Asian American to win a statewide race, um, second to Georgia Supreme Court Justice Carla Wong McMillan, who won in 2014. Um, she'd be the first Asian American person to win a political office, either in the executive or, or legislative branch. She also, she launched her campaign with an announcement video. I just want to note that that checks off an important thing on the Luke Boggs assessment uh, box there. What did you think of B. Wynn's announcement for Secretary of State? I, I thought it was good, you know, solid uh, B plus A minus range. You know, the, the ones I, I think that are more impressive to me are the ones that like really focusing on the why me, why now kind of announcement videos. And, and, and that was part of that video. But a lot of it was just, you know, the kind of like the things I want to do as Secretary of State are. And, and I, I think I think that comes comes later i think the the values stuff comes first but i'm nitpicking i'm very happy to see that b is in the race i like b uh she's she's been a very uh good state representative and been a fierce advocate at the capitol and so i'm i'm happy to see that she's in this race and i think um this continues the trend that i've been hopeful for and talking about of seeing uh people with you know thicker political resumes and have won tough races tackling these uh statewide positions instead of people who have never won or run for office before or uh people who you know had political careers a couple decades before and then and jumping in so yeah I, i'm i'm very excited to see uh be in this race i'm very excited uh to see how many of my other friends are excited by her being in the race and i think it will be really interesting to see how uh, it develops because I, I just imagine that there will be other people running on the Democratic side for Secretary of State. As you said, there's at least one other Democrat in the uh, race with Manswell Peterson, and I'm sure other ones will get in. I don't know if there will be anyone of B. Wynn's resume to get into this race. I, I imagine she will have a lot of support uh, both among the official party apparatus and among uh, voters. She is out there a lot she's you know gone viral a couple of times so i you know i i i think she is a favorite for this position at least right now with the people that i'm aware of <laughs> that are running for the position uh and or or might do it so uh that being said i think it's gonna be an uphill climb for her because this this is one of the positions that obviously is going to see a lot of attention and uh ire from Donald Trump, uh, both in the primary and in the general. And so I think that will be a tough thing for anybody to navigate. And she will have to 
build a campaign and a message that's resilient to both Brad Raffensperger uh, running as an incumbent or successful challenger Joey Heiss. And I mean, as far as Republican politicians in the state of Georgia, I cannot think of two more different individuals than Brad Raffensperger and Joey Heiss. So I, I will be really curious to see how she tries to navigate that element because there it is important to build a message against like why not my opponent as well and so th- those two have very very different profiles um and so it'll, it'll be interesting to see uh how how she addresses that i am curious about how the the primary uh the primaries are going to shake out here how many of them are actually going to be competitive there is i think one blockbuster democratic primary that's already taking shape. And that's Jen Jordan and Charlie Bailey in the attorney general's race. But when you look at, you know, the governor's race, we sort of assume that that's going to be Stacey Abrams and probably no serious challenger to her. When you look at Lieutenant governor, you have Eric Allen there. He may draw some additional challengers, but somebody like Sarah Riggs Amico, who was the democratic nominee in 2018, she's not running. And in fact, she's chairing Eric Allen's campaign. Um, When you start to go further down the list, these obviously are, are less visible offices with the exception of maybe secretary of state. I wonder if B win draws a, a serious challenger there. And then there are more people running for the, the less visible offices. Um, but even in an insurance commissioner, uh, another sort of notable young up and coming democratic uh, legislator, Matthew Wilson, he recently announced that he's going to run for insurance commissioner. Um, you know, we'll see if, I mean, that kind of covers most of the the big names that have made a name for themselves as young Democrats at the legislature. Um, you know, maybe you could see return bids from somebody like Jason Carter, although I don't know that there's any rumors to that effect. Um, otherwise, I think you're kind of looking for people who don't have a high profile now, but who may sort of burst onto the scene with a with a dynamic campaign in any one of these primaries. Um, if that's not the case though, aside from the attorney general's race, primary season, at least as of now, doesn't appear to be developing into a highly competitive, uh, set of races between big name Georgia Democrats, at least as of today. We'll, we'll see if that changes. Yeah. I was about to be very critical, but then you threw in another, at least as of today, because I, I really think that there are a lot of people looking for the exits from the legislature. And, I mean, especially with the fact that incumbent Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is is not running for re-election, I, I will be very shocked if more people don't look at the Lieutenant Governor's position because just, I mean, frankly, it's a lot easier to win an open seat than it is to go against an incumbent. So I, I suspect that there will be more names in that race and probably more uh, serious names. But, you know, you, you never know with these things because I've been wrong about that before. Um, the other thing... Anybody to, you want to throw out there as a I, potential? I mean, that's why I'm a little hesitant is there's no one who jumps to mind. But also, had you asked me a couple months ago if Jeff Duncan was going to run for re-election, I'd be like, yes, why wouldn't he? Uh, so the fact that he's not, like, I, I think really shakes that up. And I mean, just like, frankly, if I was uh, advising any up and coming star in the party, like I I would be looking at it just because of the fact that the Lieutenant Governor's position is a important position. It's, it's 
you know, sort of like the old <laughs> position of the vice president in, in the country where you don't really have a lot to do, but it is a good platform for running for higher office in the future. Um, and so I, I really don't have any names on the mind that might be looking at it, um, but I, I think you'd be kind of silly not to. Uh, I, I, I think, you know, Jen Jurgen or B. Wynn could have looked at it before, but I think they sort of like set themselves up for these other positions um, before the Jeff Duncan news was uh, announced. And I, I think, frankly, it's like those are better fits for, for both of them, the positions they chose rather than lieutenant governor. Uh, and, and then the other thing I, I will say is I won't be surprised if some of these lower level commissioner positions end up having decently competitive primaries and, and maybe they'll be even more competitive because people will have less of an opinion about these figures because, I mean, as you mentioned, like, I really can't imagine someone who would be successfully able to beat Stacey Abrams for, for governor. Like, I'm sure the person exists, but I have no idea who they'd be or how they'd run that campaign and what, you know, what would need to happen for that to be possible. But, you know, for Commissioner of Insurance, Matt Wilson, I like him. He's a smart guy. He's been a good legislator, but I could see someone being him. I could see someone, you know, in a contested, you know, I could see a very contested primary emerging for commissioner of agriculture or labor since there's already a couple people in there. Um, but right now, uh, I agree with you that there are some kind of clear favorites in a couple of these positions. But I, I really think lieutenant governor and attorney general are going to be slugfests. Well, that I think is a good place to wrap up for today. Uh, Luke, as always, thanks for, for joining the podcast. We'll be keeping an eye on these campaigns as they get fired up. Um, happy to be here and happy that, you know, every time we think there won't be news, the uh, news always appears for us. It always finds us. All righty, y'all. Stay safe. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for tuning into Peach Pod. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, take care, y'all.